Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. The mercy of Christ gives us eternal life, not only for after death, but especially for here and now. Jesus has given us life to live as new creations every day. We can build a better world through Christ's saving grace. In this last session of Wednesday Night Alive, Reverend Wendy Lambert and I were teaching a course called Celtic Christianity. We were learning all about how Christianity came to Ireland. And so we were studying St. Patrick and we were studying St. Bridget and, and just learning a lot about that history. But as I was doing all this study on Ireland, I came across some things I did not know. For instance, I did not know that in Belfast, Ireland, in 1989 and in 2018 and 2019, it was listed as the number one tourist attraction in the world. In Belfast, Ireland, the attraction, it was the Titanic Museum. The Titanic Museum had opened in Belfast in 2012, which was the 100th anniversary of the Titanic's maiden and final voyage. They had opened up this museum and so many people started coming. It became such an amazing place and a draw, listed number one tourist attraction in the world, 2018-2019, right before COVID hit. So many people were coming. 84% of those who came 
were from outside of Ireland. No, it's people coming from around the world. This year, just a couple days ago, was the 110th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Well, not only is it incredibly popular there in, in Ireland, but I also found that if you would like to go to China, you can get a full-size replica of the Titanic. It is being built right now. It is not down on the coast. No, it is inland at a theme park. But you can go and rent a room and stay on the Titanic. You can come down that staircase, the grand staircase. You can experience all the finery and the beauty of the Titanic. But if you can't make it to China, you can go to Branson, Missouri. It's not a full size, it's a half size scale there in Branson, but it still is pretty amazing. But if that's not good enough for you, you can buy a ticket with Ocean Gate. Ocean Gate is a small submarine and it'll carry about six people and they will launch you from the ship in the North Atlantic and then you go down 12,000 feet down to the bottom of the ocean. You then are able to circle around the Titanic and you are up close and you see it with your own eyes. You are right there with the Titanic. You'll do that for a while and when you finally come back, I mean it's about a 12 hour trip to descend, see it, come back. The good news is the tickets are only 250000 a ticket. The bad news is they're booked for the rest of this year. Now, people are interested in the Titanic to this day. It's fascinating. You remember, it was built in Belfast, Ireland. That's why they have built this museum there. It sailed, sailed from Belfast down to Southampton and then Cork, Ireland, and that's where it set sail for New York City. Largest luxury liner in the world, the unsinkable Titanic, so many people wanted to be on it and experience that maiden voyage. I mean, it was amazing. Such class and elegance. It left port April the 10th, 1912. It sailed for four days until the 14th of April. And it was that evening that it hit an iceberg. It took a little while to figure out that this was really serious. But finally, it was only at 2.20 a.m., the Titanic would literally break in half and it would sink to the bottom of the ocean floor. 2,200 people were on board. 1,500 people died. We didn't know exactly where it had drifted to after it hit the iceberg. So we didn't know exactly where it had gone down. And certainly in 1912, we did not have the technology to be able to get down on the bottom of the ocean floor two miles deep to find it. And so we knew that the Titanic was gone forever. But then in 1985, Robert Ballard wanted to have an expedition to try to find the Titanic in the North Atlantic. He actually had already tried back in 1977 and they had failed. But now he was back again. He now had created this sled. It was a submarine that was being drug along by a cable all the way up to the mothership, two miles up. And they had a rope 
controlled robotic eye that can now kind of look around and cover more territory, and they drug this sled across the sandy ocean floor, looking for any kind of metal they might see. They'd been doing it for about 12 days with no results. It was now September the 1st, 1985, and Robert Ballard was in his room, and he was awake that night. He couldn't sleep because they only had a couple more days, and he now knew they were probably going to fail again. It was late in the evening when suddenly there was a knock at his door, and he opened it, and they said, we need you to come quick. We think we may see something. He threw on his overalls and came down to the control room, and there on the screen they looked, and it did look like something sticking up out of the sand, and they changed their course and went over to it, and what they found was it was the smokestack off of the Titanic. So now that they had found that, they began looking for other debris, a debris trail as it may have come down, and they started following this debris trail through that dark, and then they saw it. It was the Titanic, sitting upright on the ocean floor, resting in the sand. They found it. Against all odds, they had found it, and everybody started jumping up and down and high-fiving. We did it. We found the Titanic. And then they looked up, and they happened to see the time, and it was 12.20 a.m. The same time on that fateful day that it had broken apart and gone to the ocean floor. And Robert said suddenly people didn't feel like celebrating. Somehow it seemed wrong to be dancing on somebody's grave. 1,500 people had died there. And everybody grew silent. It became a holy moment. They came back in 1986, now bringing with them lots of photography equipment and video equipment to try to be able to film the Titanic, to take pictures, and when they did, it was splashed on newspapers and magazines around the world. Everybody was talking about the Titanic. The movie would come out in 1997, hard to believe, 25 years ago. The movie came out and just stoked all the excitement again, and now you have museums and replicas being built. You know, Robert Ballard was such an oceanographer and explorer. In the end, he didn't just discover the Titanic. No, he would find other things like the Bismarck, which was the German battleship that got sunk. And again, no one knew where it was. They found it. He was an incredibly successful explorer, very famous. And several years ago, he was invited to come and to speak at Connecticut College to give their commencement address, to talk to students about life and what he had learned from his days of exploration. And I want to read you what Robert Ballard had to say to those students. Whenever I've gone out to do one of these explorations, the first time, we always fail. Whether it was for the Titanic or the Bismarck or whoever, we always failed. And we would come back and examine our mistakes and then go try again. Sometimes we failed a second time and a third time. If there's one thing that I could leave with you, it would be this. The test you must pass is not whether you fall down or not, but whether you can get back up. The journeys you will now begin in life will test you, 
And the hardest test of all will look to see how determined you are to live your dream. How strong is your heart? How strong is your heart? That's the question the disciples had to answer. Because you see, the disciples had lost their dream. Their dream was to form an army, to march on the Romans, to overthrow the Roman Empire there in Jerusalem, to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. That dream was now gone. The man they loved, Jesus, was now gone. Their dream for the future, the people they loved, they were in grief and now they feared for their life. And they were so ashamed and felt guilty at the way they had run away and denied Him. No, on the other side of the cross, the disciples found themselves having to ask, do I think I'll ever have a dream again? Will I laugh again? Will I love again? How strong is our heart? I believe that right now, you and I are living in such a fascinating time, one of the most difficult times that I can remember in my life, the last two years. And I think the question we have to face on this Easter morning is, how strong is your heart? Now you think about the last two years. Two years ago, this sanctuary was empty. Two years ago on Easter, the sanctuary was empty. We were all home, we were isolated. In the end, we became very lonely and disjointed from one another. So many people became sick. I became sick. I know so many people who died. Members of this family of faith, wonderful people who died. We lived with a sense of fear and anxiousness. It was hard. And then during that period, it seems like our federal government struggled terribly, that our federal government seemed to turn on itself and one another. I have never seen us be so mean and divisive towards one another. I never dreamed that I'd see a day when people would be storming our capital. Now you and I are watching a war in Ukraine, and I'm watching such horrible things that I never could have imagined. You, you have to be disturbed when you see what is going on in Ukraine. And because of COVID and because of Ukraine, now we have all these supply chain problems and all these shortage problems and prices are going through the roof and inflation's at a 41-year high. That's all happening in a two-year period of time, such life-significant things happening in the world. In the meantime, we all had other things happen in our lives. Because of all this, you may have had an economic struggle. You may have struggled in your job. You may have struggled with your health. It may have caused struggles in your relationships. It has not been an easy two years. And I think the question for us comes to this day, how strong is your heart? Do you feel like you can laugh again, love again? pursue your dreams again? You know, I've had so many people say to me, Bob, I'm just tired. 
and I'm depressed. So many people retiring, stepping out. It's the great resignation. People just going, I'm tired and depressed. How strong is your heart? Can you dream again and laugh again and love again? Be passionate about life again? I believe for us, our foundation is Easter. For it is the message of Easter that I believe strengthens us to have a strong heart, to have a renewed spirit, that in spite of all that may have happened to us in the world and personally, you and I can still know joy and a sense of peace. How do we find that in the Easter message? It's what I want us to look at this morning. And I, I just want to say two things to you. First of all, go to the tomb. Face your fear. Face your grief. For I think you will discover that God has already been at work for a new future. I love the story of the women this morning in the Bible. I, I love the story. I love it because you know, it's the women who went to see the crucifixion. The men, they, they went and hid. They all ran away. They're in hiding. It's the women who go to watch the crucifixion, to grieve. They see Joseph and, and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus down from the cross. They see where they lay the body and how the stone is rolled in front of the tomb. They have to go home because it is now sundown on Friday night, the beginning of the Sabbath. You cannot work on the Sabbath, so they're at home that night, all next day, until sundown on Saturday night. They have to wait through the night to first light on Sunday morning. And so now they go to the tomb to anoint the body properly for burial, but they know they got a problem. They're heading to the tomb, and they're saying to one another, who's going to roll the stone away? We can't roll that stone away. They know they got a problem that is bigger than they are. And yet they go. I love that. There's a problem bigger than they are, and yet they go. And when they get there, what they discover is the stone is rolled away. God has already been at work, but giving them a vision for a new future. And you know, the great question is, why did God roll the stone away? Was it so Jesus could get out the resurrection? If you read further in the gospel, you'll read that on that night when Jesus is going to be, well, the disciples are gathered in the upper room for fear of the authorities. It says, and they were gathered in the upper room and the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them. Now, I don't think you had to roll the stone away for Jesus to get out of the tomb. I think God rolled the stone away so the, woman could, the women could see into the tomb that it was empty. That God was at work in their life, already giving them a new vision for the future. This morning was going to wind up being the morning that was foundational for these women and for the disciples that in spite of all the failure and the grief and the shame and the pain, they were still loved. God was still at work in their life to give them a vision for the future. And when you know that you were loved in the midst of all the craziness, 
You don't have to be afraid. If you're a golfer, I know last Sunday afternoon what you were doing on the beginning of Holy Week. On Palm Sunday, you went home and you could hardly wait to see the Masters. At least that's what I did. I was anxious to go see the Masters. And I, I did not know about Scotty Scheller. I, I just, I, I didn't really know about him. Turns out that he's 25 years old. He was going into the Masters, leading on the final day. Scotty seemed to be a really nice young man. Um, but as I say, I did not know about him. It turned out that his caddy um, wound up being a, a Ted Scott. Now, Scotty was 25 years old. Ted's about 50 years old, twice his age. And they just started working together at the beginning of this season. Scotty joined the PGA Tour this year, or full-time, uh, two years ago in 2020. This is only the beginning of his third season. And this year in 2020, he's played in six tournaments and won four. Now, th that's just unheard of. I mean, that doesn't happen in the golfing world. That doesn't happen with Tiger Woods. I mean, to win four out of six tournaments you play in? You got this new dynamic duo? Well, I'm watching the tournament, and when they come to the 17th tee box, Scotty's getting up to tee off, and about that time, the commentator said, you know, it's been wonderful to see what's happened with Scotty and, with his, and then with Ted, his new caddy. You know, today's Palm Sunday, and I think it's just so appropriate because these two guys met in a Bible study a year ago, and then he went off on the next part, and I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm always looking for a good story. <laughs> I'm going, there's a story there. I know there is. And so I started digging into it. And yep, sure enough, there was. They had met a year ago at a Bible study. But it turns out that Ted um, was already a part of another team. He was already a caddy for the last 16 years. And he and his golfer decided to split. Bubba Watson had been with Ted for 16 years. They'd won two masters, but now they're still friends, but it just was time to end that relationship of golfing. So he was free. And Ted had decided, you know, I think I'm going to go home and just coach golf, maybe start selling equipment, just retire from caddy. And then he gets a call from Scotty. And this 25-year-old kid calls him and says, I hear you're free. And I just want you to know I'm looking for a caddy, but I'm looking for somebody of faith. I want somebody who won't just help me win tournaments, but will make me a better person. I'm looking for someone to work with full time and to join me. Well, that was something different for Ted. And so he went to his family and said, look, I want you to pray about this for the next week. And then you tell me what I should do. So the family prayed about it. And they came back a week later and said, you should you should caddy for Ted, I mean for Scotty. He said, okay, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I now want you to pray another week, and let's see if that comes up again. <laughs> and so the family prayed another week, and they came back and said, we still think you should caddy for Scotty. And so we agreed. And so the two of them are playing, and, you know, Ted's going, this kid's already a great golfer. It's not me. And Scotty's going, he's made all the difference in the world. Four wins in six tournaments. No, something's actually happened. 
But the other person who's made such a difference is his wife, Meredith. He met Meredith in high school, back there in Highland Park in Dallas. And they both went to school. He went to the University of Texas. She went to Texas A&M. Kind of an OU, OSU kind of a thing. When they discovered that their relationship could withstand that, they got married when they graduated. December of 2020, they got married. And she's been so good to try to bring him peace. Can you imagine the stress when you're out there like playing golf, much less in a major tournament, the Masters? He looks so calm out there striding across the fairways. But after the tournament, he would, he would be honest and say, Sunday morning of the Masters, you don't tee off if you're leading to the last one, like 2.40 in the afternoon. He said, all Sunday morning, the stress was so great, I cried like a baby. And he would say to Meredith, I don't know that I'm ready for this. I don't know that I'm ready for this. And she would talk to him to encourage him. And I want to read you what Scotty Scheffler had to say in his interview afterwards. He said, for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Like Meredith told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. I don't care if you win. I don't care if you lose. I'm going to love you. You're still the same person. Jesus will still love you. Nothing changes. When you know that you are truly loved unconditionally, then you're not afraid. It brings you a sense of peace that you can go out and live life. And things may go well and things may go poorly, but you know that you're loved. The women went to the tomb. The disciples would ultimately go to the tomb. And what they would discover is, in spite of the failures and the guilt and the struggles, we're still loved unconditionally. And that changes everything. It gives you strength. How strong is your heart? Secondly, when the women went to the tomb, they never could have dreamed in a million years that what they were going to hear is, He is not here. He is risen. The reason the stone is rolled away, it's so the women can see inside and discover the tomb is empty. And hear the words, He is not here. He is risen. To be confronted with a life after death, that maybe we are more than a body, that we are a spirit, a personality, a soul, that there is more to life than just this physical body, that we are born into the presence of God, our loving Creator. You know, this is the 10th anniversary of the book that was published called Proof of Heaven, written by Eben Alexander. I thought it was a wonderful book, even though I hated the title. I hated the title because it says proof of heaven. And I, I don't think you can prove heaven, and our goal is not to prove heaven. 
you and I believe in heaven on faith. That is, we trust in God's love for us as children. It's based on faith, trust. And you and I trust that our Creator loves us unconditionally and that when we die, we are born into the arms of God, our loving Creator. And so we don't have to be afraid because of that promise of new life in God's kingdom. And I can't explain what heaven is all like. People try. Like I said, I don't, I don't care for that. I, I believe in there's mystery in faith. There's mystery in our religion. The mystery of how we're born into the presence of God and what it is like. I just believe it's going to be good, better than anything we can imagine. And so I believe in the promise of, of new life in God's presence. So I didn't care for the title, Proof of Heaven, but I did love his story and I would th agree theologically with what he was willing to share. You see, Eben Alexander was born to a, a mom who was 16 years old in high school and his dad was 18 years old. And his mom and dad had dreams of going to college and what they wanted to be and they knew that there's no way that they had the maturity nor the money to be able to raise this child. And so they decided to put Evan up for adoption. He was adopted by a wonderful family. They had other children, but they adopted Evan, and they, they would say to him early on, you're adopted, and we chose you out of all other children. That's how special you are. He grew up in a good home. They wanted him to go to school. They made sure he went to church. He got a great upbringing. In the end, he loved school, loved science, and decided he wanted to be a doctor. Then he decided he wanted to be a surgeon. So he went to Duke University to medical school, and then he went to Massachusetts General for his residency. Then he went and studied at Harvard. But he decided, you know, academics isn't where he wants to go. He wants to be a surgeon, and he became a neurosurgeon, and he loved what he did. But he also found, looking back, what had happened was he became so much of a scientist that God kind of got pushed into the corner. It's not that he didn't believe, he just didn't really know or care so much anymore. He would go to church on Easter, Christmas, but he never really thought about God. He had a number of patients who had experiences that were kind of out-of-the-body experiences, something more, but he didn't really listen to that because that didn't fit science, what you can see and measure. He just kind of set that aside. Well, he got married, had several kids, had a good life. And then in midlife, he decided he wanted to get to meet his biological parents. And he started trying to work. How do I find them? And it was not easy, especially in those days when he had been adopted. They did everything you could to make sure you never found them. It took him 10 years to find his biological parents. And when he did, it's fascinating what he discovered. They both had graduated high school. They both graduated college. And then they got married. They had three children. They had wonderful careers. They had two daughters and a son. Life had gone great. And the children had no idea they had a brother. And after Evan came back, they agreed to let him meet the rest of the family. 
The only problem was his youngest sister, Betsy, she had died a year before. He would never get to know that sister, but he would get to know the other sister and the other brother, mom and dad, and they had this wonderful reunion. But it wasn't long after the reunion that Eben, this perfectly healthy middle-aged man, fell ill. He went up getting E. coli bacterial meningitis, and I mean it threw him from in the morning being a healthy person to feeling bad. By that evening, he's having convulsions. They put him in the hospital. They, they wind up making, putting him on all the life-sustaining equipment. Within two days, they said he's got a 2% chance of living. The E. coli is attacking the brain. He's not going to make it. If he were to make it, he will be a vegetable. He will never be able to talk or have motor skills. They sustained him for a week. And finally, at the end of a week, they said, we need to let him go. We need to pull the plug. And the family agreed. And on the morning they were going to disconnect the life support system, Eben woke up. He opened his eyes. He began to talk. People were stunned. I mean, within one month, his memory was back, his speech was back, his motor skills were back. He was back. At the end of two months, he was ready to operate again. I mean, he was back. But he sat down and he wrote about what he had experienced while he was out. No, he had an NDE, a near-death experience. And he wrote down what had happened. He said, I was drawn up into a special place. I don't know how to describe it other than heaven. It felt so good. It was so beautiful. I knew that I'd come into the presence of God. I didn't see God, but I felt God. I knew God. And the message that I kept hearing over and over again was, do you understand how you were loved unconditionally? You don't have to go around feeling guilty and ashamed and never good enough. Do you know what it means to say you're loved unconditionally by God? Do you understand how interconnected we are and how much we are called to love and to be caring for each other? That was the message I kept getting, he said. I had a guide who kind of led me through this experience that I was having in heaven. It was a woman, and she was beautiful, blonde hair. She had a very caring smile. She had a deep, piercing blue eyes. Somehow I felt so attached to her. I felt like she loved me. Not any kind of husband-wife relationship, but I felt loved by her. Well, as Eben began to pull all this back together, he started talking to some of his colleagues and close friends and started telling them this. And when he did, they all said, Eben, you're nuts. That's the craziest thing we've ever heard. Eben, you had a hallucination. You had a dream. That's all that it was. And Eben said, and it didn't feel like a hallucination. It didn't feel like a dream. It was so, so crisp and so clear and so definitive. It's different. But after four months, 
and hearing this from all of his colleagues and friends, you had a dream. It's a hallucination. Ebon, it did not happen. He started to wonder. He really started to wonder. Maybe it is a dream. And then he got a package from his biological sister. He had asked for it. He had asked for it after they'd had the reunion, and he wanted a picture of his sister Betsy. And she was going to send it, but then Eben got so sick and all this crisis and all that went on, she never got around to it. She'd kind of forgotten. And after four months, she finally remembered and sent him the picture of his sister. And he opened the picture, the bag, and when he saw the picture, what he saw was this beautiful lady with blonde hair with a very caring smile and piercing blue eyes. And he said, I recognized that face. That was the person who led me through heaven. And Eben said, that day, I knew it wasn't a dream. It was real. You and I don't have proof. There's a lot of mystery. But we know it is real. That we are more than a body. That it is our loving creator who promises that one day we are born into the arms of God. And you don't have to be afraid of death. And if you're not afraid of death, then you're not afraid of life. You can deal with the good times and hard times, success and failure, because what you discover when you go to the tomb is that the stone's already been rolled away. That God is already at work in ways you did not even know that God is going to help you have a new future. You don't have to be afraid. Your heart can be strong. Because the women went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty. And they heard the message, He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist.